Hey, before we begin, I want to let you know about a new show from Curious Cast that I think you might be into. It's called Russia Rising. Putin's Russia has been accused of using internet trolls, hackers, and even assassins to influence the West. This new investigative podcast hopes to unravel the giant mystery that is Russia with the help of those who know her best. Russian trolls, hackers, Putin supporters, and even a former KGB spy. Join Global News Europe Bureau Chief Jeff Semple on a journey to find out how Russia has gone from tenuous ally to a potential global threat. Listen to Russia Rising for free at CuriousCast.ca or wherever you're enjoying This Is Why. He's a remarkable man. He's an honest man. He's an honestly hardworking man who loved to run. A marathon runner accused of cheating commits suicide. I'm Nikki Reitmeyer, and this is Why. Frank Meza was 70 years old when he ran in the Los Angeles Marathon earlier this spring. He ran so fast that he not only won the marathon, but also set a new record for his age group. Keep in mind, a marathon is 42 kilometers long. His time was two hours and 53 minutes. The average length of time that it takes to run a marathon is four hours and 22 minutes. And Frank was 70 years old. You're probably starting to wonder if Frank's incredible race sounds a bit too good to be true. Turns out, it was. Frank Meza was disqualified for cheating. The Los Angeles Marathon, one of the largest races in the USA. This year, more than 20,000 runners participated. Now one of those runners who made a huge impression during the race is accused of cheating. The news broke on June 28th when the L.A. Marathon posted a disqualification notice that stated, After an extensive review of original video evidence from official race cameras and security cameras at retail locations along the race course, Conquer Endurance Group has determined that Dr. Frank Meza violated a number of race rules during the 2019 Skechers Performance Los Angeles Marathon, including re-entering the course from a position other than where he left it. The video evidence is confirmed by a credible eyewitness report and our calculation that Dr. Meza's actual running time for at least one 5K course segment would have had to have been faster than the current 70 to 74 age group 5K world record, bracket, an impossible feat during a marathon, and bracket. The next fastest runner in Frank's age group was a guy named Dan. Dan's time was one hour and 20 minutes slower than what Frank posted. So Frank Meza was disqualified for cheating. But that's not where this story ends. A 70-year-old long-distance runner who made headlines this week for alleged cheating in the L.A. Marathon was found dead this morning in the L.A. River. Dr. Frank Meza was disqualified from the marathon after setting a record time for his age group under three hours. One marathon investigator saying this week there is video showing him leave the course. 
Meza has said he was looking for a bathroom and did not take a shortcut. His cause of death now under investigation. In a bizarre and tragic twist, Frank Meza's body was found in the Los Angeles River on July 4th. Seven days after he'd been disqualified, Frank was dead. See, when news broke that he'd been accused of cheating in the LA Marathon, people started to dig into his past. They started looking at other marathons he'd participated in, examining his times, exploring evidence, trying to determine, had he cheated before? And what they found was pretty ugly. Turns out Frank had been disqualified from the California International Marathon in 2014 after missing several timing mats along the course. Same thing happened at the same race in 2016, but this time he was disqualified and banned. When he ran the LA Marathon in 2015, he finished with an incredible time of 2 hours and 52 minutes. Now, officials didn't have any solid proof that he cheated, although the time seemed nearly impossible to achieve. They said that next year, Frank would have to run alongside an official observer who would watch him every step of the race. But next year, Frank decided not to take part. Then there was the 2014 San Francisco Marathon. A picture surfaced that looked just like Frank during the race, riding a bike along the course. Derek Murphy is an online blogger who investigates marathon cheaters. What else did he dig up against Frank? Well, he found that at the Phoenix Marathon earlier this year, there was a video camera set up at mile 22. In Derek's words, Frank never appears on the video. He never passed the camera. He never ran that section of the course. Was Frank a serial marathon cheater? Prior to his death and in the days after his disqualification, so many people in the online realm became fascinated with Frank's story. People like Derek Murphy. It's you know, kind of a hobby where other people might binge watch their favorite show or you know, hop on the computer and browse and play video games. I'm looking at marathon results. Derek spoke on CKNW in Vancouver with radio show host Simi Sarah. His blog is MarathonInvestigation.com, and he joins us now. Derek, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. How did you get started doing this? Just looking on, online at running forums and came across you know, some examples of people cheating, and it was just fascinating to me. You know, who would do that? Why would you do it? That kind of thing. So on my own, I just pulled up a race result, and I found somebody that you know, had cheated in a pretty fast time in a race. It took me about two minutes to find this. So that's when I realized, hey, maybe this is a little more common than what you would typically think. So I just kind of dug in and it kind of blew up from there. Why do people do it? I mean, they're not doing it for the money, right? There's usually not money involved in these races. Not directly. You have some cases where maybe like a running coach or a blogger or someone who does profit that way from cheating. Um, A lot of times it's to qualify for the Boston Marathon. The Boston Marathon has strict standards on who can run it. You have to be able to run a certain time. So I see a lot of that. Then a lot of times it's just for, you know, I think social media plays a big role in it. It's, you know, it's to post, hey, I ran this fast time. I completed this marathon. I, I qualified for Boston. I, 
you know, whatever. So I just see a lot of that where there was really no benefit, but you, know, you see people who some people don't even run a single mile posting that they've finished races and, you know, posting times that aren't as fast as they really run. So I think, yeah, social media plays a big role. But what motivated Frank? Well, we don't know, because he maintained through the whole investigation that he was innocent. Derek wrote in one of his many online articles about Frank that, quote, as long as Frank continues to claim that he has been unjustly disqualified and that he has never cut a course or rode a bike along a course, I feel it is necessary to present all the evidence that is available, end quote. And Derek seemed to find a lot of evidence. Photos of Frank seemingly off course or riding a bike during a marathon. Then there was the missed timing mats, a clue that Derek said is common in his investigations. Most any race course, they'll have timing mats on the course. Within your bib is a chip that registers you as you cross one of these timing mats. So you can look at you know, their paces for the first 10 kilometers and all the way to the finish. So you look for odd things like somebody running the second half of a race faster than they ran the first half. And then, you know, you see that, then you'll dig in, okay, look at photos. Are there any photos of them on the second half of the race? And and that, that kind of thing. So um, typically I'll look at paces or missed timing mats. In this case, the runner did actually miss a, a timing mat. Before I write an article, especially one that I think may get the attention that the runner, I make every effort to reach out and, you know, talk to the runner, you know, tell them, hey, here's what I have. Do you fully admit this? And sometimes the data is so overwhelming, you, you think they would have, and then sometimes they just kind of shut down and you don't, you don't hear from them. Frank never confessed to cheating. In fact, he insisted he was innocent, but the evidence was mounted against him. Frank was disqualified from the L.A. Marathon on June 28th. On July 4th, his body was found in the river. It appears we have one deceased victim at the bottom of the riverbed. What happened to Frank Meza? The coroner's office confirms a runner disqualified from the L.A. Marathon committed suicide. The body of 70-year-old Frank Mesa was found in the L.A. River on Thursday. He denied allegations that he cheated during some of his long-distance runs, but the questions may have been too much. During his final days, retired family physician Dr. Frank Mesa faced public humiliation following reports that cameras along the Los Angeles Marathon route captured him re-entering the course from a position other than where he left it. He was also spotted coming from a sidewalk and re-entering the race last March. Mesa's said he was looking for a restroom and did not take a shortcut. Today, his grieving wife, Tina, was quoted as saying they were all manufactured lies and he couldn't figure out why people were willing to listen to this. We don't understand why he was attacked. It hurt him deeply. I still don't understand it. Do you think these allegations killed your husband? Yes, I do believe that. I do believe that. The day after Frank's suicide, Derek Murphy, the online marathon investigator, released a written statement. He wrote, I'm deeply saddened to learn of Frank Meza's death. My heart goes out to his family and friends, and I wish for everyone to be respectful and to keep his loved ones in mind. There will be a time for comment and a broader discussion. But at this point, I feel we should all allow those close to Frank the space to grieve. He's a remarkable man, he's an honest man, he's an honestly hardworking man who loved to run.
coming up later in this episode. You know, we had Cougar coming by and trying to attack us. And yeah, there there was a lot of suffering in the very beginning, a lot, probably seven months of it. A Canadian woman who thrives on surviving in the wild. Part one of this episode includes audio from CBS, ABC, and Inside Edition, as well as quotes and content from MarathonInvestigation.com. You're listening to This Is Why, a national radio show and podcast from Global News. Imagine being completely alone, completely isolated in the Canadian wilderness. For some people, that sounds terrifying. For other people, that sounds like a dream come true. Uh, My name is Nikki Van Scheindel, and I'm a wilderness guide and primitive survivalist. Nikki is a survivalist who came out of the wild and into the studio to talk about her passion for Canada's great unknown. Did you really pay someone to abandon you on a deserted island in the wild for a year and a half? (laughs) Yeah, I did. Why? It was a childhood dream of mine. And I just got tired of waiting for a plane to crash or a ship to wreck that would, you know, abandon me on some island. So I just decided to plan the trip myself and a friend of mine, my cat and a rowboat. And we ended up making a phone call and found a float. Uh, I mean, a water taxi service and paid them to drop us off and abandon us in the wilderness. I imagine that you were the type of kid who read books like The Hatchet <laughs> and My Side of the Mountain. Yeah, that was exactly my childhood. I wanted to be Sam Gribley from the book My Side of the Mountain. I mean, it was like my dream to make my own clothes and, you know, make pottery and live off the land. I love that book. I know. It was the best book ever. And I actually contacted uh, Jean Craighead George when I got back and said, you know what? Thank you so much for your book. I became Sam Gribley. I did it. I did it. And it was really cool to reconnect with her um, and tell her all about my journeys. So that takes us forward to now you being on a deserted island for a year and a half. (laughs) What is the first thing you do when you land on a deserted island from a survivalist's point of view? Well, the first thing I did was I watched this boat kind of poof off into the distance and was like, what have I just done? Was this a good idea? And then I looked back at kind of the supplies that we had decided to bring because we wanted to be, you know, primitive. So we wanted to make everything off the land. And I looked back and I thought, wow, I didn't bring enough stuff to get started with. Um, And then the first thing you do is you, you look for a place to build a shelter. Um, Shelter is basically the first thing that you want to kind of tick off your list besides laughing at your situation probably. (laughs) Besides (laughs) taking a big breath. (laughs) Yeah, waving your arms and going, come back, come back. (laughs) What kind of of shelter did you build? Uh, We built just a little lean-to made out of bark. And we lived in that for about six months. And, uh, And then we traveled to another place that... Looked like they had more food, bigger fish, um, a little more wild, even than where we were. And we found this kind of three-walled, forgotten little shack in there. And we kind of split cedar boards and fixed it up and lived in there for a whole year. What did you do for food? Uh, We hunted with our bows and arrows, and we trapped animals. We snared and trapped bears. Wow. And huge fish, big halibuts, big lingcods. And we dried and jerkied every bit of meat and... Basically, yeah, and dried plants, um, seaweeds. Yeah, we 
we really thrived out there after we got good at everything. You're making it sound so easy and idealistic, <laughs> it but wasn't. I imagine there must have been some harrowing experiences. It was terrifying. Yeah, we had near death from shipwrecks, you know, in our little tiny 10-foot rowboat. I mean, we almost sunk a lot of times in big storms that we weren't expecting and you know, we had cougar coming to by and trying to attack us. And, yeah, there there was a lot of suffering in the very beginning, a lot, probably seven months of it. Forgive me for wanting to hear the gory details. Of course. But please tell me one of these wild stories, mm-hmm. whether it's the shipwreck tale or the encounter with the cougar. I want to hear these gory details. Yeah, there was a lot of moments where... You really just had to ask yourself, why am I here? Why am I doing this? Is this worth it? And then every night you'd be lying in this leaking shelter, lying in a pool of water going, yeah, this is the best experience I've ever had. I might not be able to lift my arm right now. I'm so exhausted. But I'm having the time of my life. You know, we were really living. Like to know what that meant and the freedom that we had was you know, you can't you can't get that in our modern life anymore. And so but there was these times where I remember this, uh, we had this cougar come by and I had brought my feral cat with me. She was a great hunter. So when we were starving, like she'd bring home birds and mice and everything to keep us going. And a cougar came one day and was trying to eat her. She took off. We didn't know where she was. And this cougar kept circling around our little lean-to and it was night. And all we had was these tiny little five-inch knives. And I remember just sitting back to back with my friend Micah and this you know, cougar just growling and roaring and screaming outside of this little bark shelter. And really, I hadn't been so afraid in all my life. And we were like, well, what do we do? And, you know, we said, well, what do we remember on television? You know, when the animals come, they make these, you know, <laughs> these light up this kind of torch. So we're like trying to make this torch and this burning stick. And we get the stick burnt. And we throw it out as if it was going to light up the forest like it does on television. <laughs> we're like, it just went out immediately. We're like, okay, that doesn't work. By the way, that <laughs> does not work. <laughs> and we just sat there. We never left. I mean, it was just so scary. We We never even looked up above the lean-to to see it. It was so frightening. And it did this for three days until finally it disappeared. For three days? For three days, yeah. We basically just walked back to back with knives out, you know, and it would be circling around. We could hear the bird alarms where it was. And it did this three nights in a row. I mean, we didn't sleep. We just, I mean, what do you do? I mean, I, I still don't know what you do, and I've been doing this now for 25 years. I imagine that as you're sitting back to back, there's a lot of different thoughts that are going through your mind, but one of them must have been what happens if one of us or both of us get seriously hurt. Yeah, for sure. What do you do for medical attention? Uh, We didn't have a plan for that. Uh, We didn't have a backup. We didn't have a radio to call Coast Guard or anything. Our plan was take care of one another and we were using um, just plants as our medicines so I knew a lot of being an herbal herbalist we, we thought we would be able to take care of ourselves and it was actually the moment that we really learned that that person's life meant just as much as mine like we were so like I will take care of you and you will take care of me it was this real kind of bonding moment for us out there before that, we were just really competitive. Like, I want to be the first person to make this fish hook work. (laughs) And all we did was compete. And you were kind of happy for the person making something really great. And at the same time, like, no, I'm so jealous of that. Um, So it was really this amazing 24-hour relationship seminar of how to be a good friend, really. 
Mm-hmm. Isn't that funny, though? That sort of defines the human success story. That Absolutely. We've had to rely on each other. Yeah, yeah. There's a bit of competition sprinkled in, but truly have had to rely on each other to make sure. civilization work. Absolutely. I mean, that moment was this defining moment for us as, you know, kind of partners on this personal quest that we had. Each of us had our own goals and stuff, but it really brought us together to be an amazing team out there. Rather, before that, we were very separate. We kind of were doing our own thing. I mean, we got together and shared chores, but um, that was really our defining moment of like moving forward to actually working together. Really powerful. You talked about this earlier, but this uh, idea that when you are surviving, that you're truly living in the moment and you're truly getting the most out of every single day and having such an awareness of who you are as a human Mm -hmm. being. It is really freeing when you're able just to live in the moment focused on your specific need for survival in that moment. Absolutely. And really, living in the city is way harder than surviving. (laughs) I guess that's why they call it an urban jungle, right? Yeah. And it's way tougher. Uh, Because in nature you're just kind of faced with truth. You know, there isn't really things deceiving you. I mean, things might be stalking you, but they're playing this the right game, you know? That's really um, interesting. But in the city, you know, you have a lot more elements that are... Um, that you got to have to navigate that's a lot harder than the wilderness. <laughs> no, that's so interesting what you said, that uh, there's a, a truth in there being is. in nature because nothing is there to deceive you. No. They're playing the game that you can predict they're going to play, albeit that might leave you in a circumstance where you're sitting back to back, wide awake all night, holding a five-inch blade. At least you know what the cougar's intentions <laughs> yes, are. Yes, it's hungry. Uh, exactly, exactly. And in town, it is is not that way. And also, in nature, it, it really shows you who you truly are as well. There's no escaping who you are in nature. If you have some doubts about yourself or if you're not feeling, you know, positive energy, the birds and all the animals will let you know exactly that you'll be like this bird alarms walking through the forest with you endlessly if you're not in that proper frame frame of mind. They will really let you know how you're feeling. Well, hey, it's been so interesting chatting with you, and I've, I've really enjoyed the conversation. It's kind of inspiring me to maybe not go camping, but at least go for a walk. Mm, good. I'm glad. If you want to learn more about Nikki, you can check out her website, daisycrockett.com. This Is Why is produced by John O'Dowd and me, Nikki Reitmeyer. It's a national radio show and a podcast. You can download on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, wherever you get your favorite podcasts from, including Spotify. Give us a rating and a review as well. We're on Twitter at This Is Why. And you can send us an email, thisiswhy at curiouscast.ca. Thanks for listening, and I'll talk to you next week.